Welcome to episode 718 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 718 of I Am Talk with Coach John Yissim and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? Pretty good. It's a good day, Bevan, because you've just got that bogey out of your nose. <laughs> I won't tell John what I said to him. <laughs> I probably can't say that on the show. Hey, sometimes, team, if it's up there, you've got to get it out. That's all we're saying. Uh, I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by... Our patrons. Jombo, let's name a couple. Patrick Barney Day. Eric... I see Bernie. That's a good one. I can't remember that one. That's a Robert good one. Robert Cuddles Evans. And then we've got Nicholas Hitch Pocock. And this week's show, guys, we've got bugger all news, but there's a couple of little things. Hot topic of the week. We've got a long interview and a legendary interview, John. It was going to be a history of triathlon, but, or what do we call that? Yeah, that's our podcast, isn't it? History of triathlon. Legend, uh, legends of triathlon. Oh, legends. There you go. Um, but we kind of put it on today because it's just such a great interview. Who we got, John? We're talking to Adam Bray, who was one of the co-founders of the Formula One triathlon series in Australia, which was basically like what Super League is today, uh, but it was an Australian-based. Um, generally, I think about five races per season started in the, the early to mid-90s and rolled through to around about 2000, 2001. And yeah, if you like Super League or you've seen Super League in action, this uh, Super League is I, I didn't quite realise how much of a copy it is. It's exactly the same. I have watched some of them, but uh, yeah, just eliminator races, triple mix, all that sort of stuff uh, is is what was already happening in the nineties. So those guys need plenty of credit for coming up with innovation and also making Australia a powerhouse nation in triathlon. It is such a good interview, guys. You're going to absolutely love it. Uh, we've got some weighing of the week and questions and answers and website of the week as well, John. Not much news, but we are kind of in Australasia time of year right now. And so we're going to look back on Ironman Australia 2019 and analyse the results. It, it was a brilliant race because I remember watching bits and pieces of this uh, last year. Um, and it was brilliant for both on the males and the females side because the females, we had an awesome just head-to-head battle between Caroline Stephan and Laura Siddle. Uh, Laura Siddle came out on top, and if you just looked at the results, you'd think, oh, well, she won by six minutes. That's you know relatively straightforward, but it was uh, far from being straightforward because uh, Caroline Stephan, she's a good swimmer. Laura Siddle, not such a great swimmer. Um, came out, uh, Laura came out six minutes behind Caroline Stephan, um, but she managed to bridge up on the bike, uh, and so she was eating away at that lead, and then it came down to just this crazy head-to-head race on the run. At one stage, I think Laura, I think Laura Sedale was a little bit in front, coming off the bike from memory, uh, and then Caroline Stephan caught her up. Uh, they ran together for a bit. I think Caroline Stephan then pulled away a bit. Then Laura Sedale caught her up again and pulled away for a relatively comfortable victory in the end. But yeah, it was uh, it was actually a good watch, and I, I had it on. I remember while I was uh, working or doing something, it was on a Sunday, uh, and yeah, fantastic females race. And then men's race. Men's race. It was a bit of a coming of age of Cameron Worth in terms of his running credentials. So we know how he can just light it up on the bike. Uh, he's number forty nine, uh, which had him five minutes down on the the main guys. Then he rode a four twenty two, which is which is really solid, but 
sometimes he, t- he he took 14 minutes out of the likes of Tim Reid. Sometimes you'd expect him to do even more than that. But the big difference in this day was then he ran a 2.50.19, yeah. which is very impressive. Uh, Tim Reid, I remember him being really happy with his race. He came home with a 2.44 and said that was the probably the best Ironman he's ever done and he couldn't have done anything better so whilst he was uh, you know, not happy about not winning he said that's as good as I could do and the better man won on the day so Cam Worth took it out uh, by about three and a half minutes from Tim Reid with Denny Chevron in third Good times, I tell you what we're looking forward to having the racing again aren't we John? We are indeed you know, like it's, it's great to look back on these results and see what was happening a year ago but geez, all we want is Ironman back in our life now, we did have the virtual series over the weekend, and we had the Australasia, or the Kiwis versus Australian, both males and females. And John, Kiwi domination. It was a crushing. Yeah, it, it really was, was awesome. wasn't it? Uh, so I didn't. I only saw the tiny little flickers of highlights. Uh, but on Saturday New Zealand time, we had Teresa Adam and Hannah Wells uh, going first and second, beating out Rad- Radka Carter, Felt, and Ashley Gentle. Teresa Adam is a beast on the bike yeah uh, she and she's won. won new zealand time trial cycling championship so she's yeah a, you know this is made for her and a big advantage she had was her partner uh, is also her coach uh, and he's in the room as well you know he's watching the footage and look i tell you what kiwis will know this but you know these races are making headline news in new zealand on our national yeah. news carrier because there's no other news happening and so whenever there's a zwift race or there's these challenges uh, especially when kiwis are involved it's on the news so i'm pretty sure on one this might have been the lead story on uh, our tv news last night um because no, I think it was second might... I think first was what was happening with sport but then mm. and then after that was second but yeah it was one of the lead stories so T- Teresa Adam had her coach her partner in the room and the other part of that story was she bought uh, got an industrial fan and we've got one of these down at our uh, tri club sort of studio we use as well because uh, she had two fans blowing on her previously and it was just overheating and so they got this big industrial fan and we've got one as I said in the tri club room and they're serious and that the cool <laughs> effect on that is massive so uh that which is an advantage in these races isn't it oh you get so hot you're just sweating up a storm if you can keep your core temperature yeah. down heart rate's going to stay down you'll be able to to produce more power so Teresa adam took out the females race and then mike phillips just beat out Braden curry on the the men's race so kiwis one and two he only beat by six seconds and now, now he had it like he had enough of a gap leading to that last i actually watched like the last couple k of it um yeah. and he did have it but Braden was definitely making a push for it Exactly. And, and Mike sort of commented again, this was on our news, that he, it was a flat course that they used for this one. I think it was Indian Wells um, yep. course. It was uh, over, what, I assume 40 Ks. Um, and Mike said, you know, here, power to weight, he probably produced uh, less power to weight than the other guys because Mike's a pretty solid unit um, compared to, say, the likes of Braden Curry and uh, Josh Amberger and Tim Reed, who are all smaller fellas. So and I think Tim good Reed's Wahoo kicker went out. So unfortunately, uh, he was kind of out of the race. Mike Phillips yeah. definitely won the best view. His, his, yes. his room, he's, does he live in Mount Pleasant, does he? Yeah, on Mount Pleasant, I think, yeah. Yeah, geez, that was a beautiful view. You kind of, I don't know why they did it at the time of day they did it. Obviously, it was maybe for the global audience, but mm. like it was run, like because I got up in the morning, kind of saw the last bit of it, and, now, and I normally get up about 5. So they were probably racing at 6 in the morning. In Australia, I think it was like 4.30. Yeah. Um, and I don't really get that. Like, you know, surely you do the times... In the codes, like 
Now, admittedly, I did check out the numbers on Facebook Live at the time, and it's 61,000 views, so there's actually quite a few views. Um, Mm -hmm. Facebook does count a one-second look as a view, pretty much, so it doesn't necessarily mean people watch it for an hour, but but you've got the numbers here of the amount of people who actually participated, because everyday people can participate in this. Yes, on Ruby, you know, you can go and ride along the same time as the, the pros, which is which is really cool. Um, but they didn't have big numbers. You know, uh, the men's race, there was only 129, uh, and the women's race was only 70. So, um, yeah. But, but I wonder if, if they'd done it, I don't know, either at like 5 o'clock at night, New Zealand time, or, or 8 o'clock in the morning, Australian Like, I know it's a bit of funny with the time difference, but do you think more Kiwis and Australians would have gotten, if it was a time that was realistic for the everyday participant? I just think that it's just a case of not that many people are on Ru- the Ruby platform compared oh, okay. to say Zwift, and and most people don't really want to pay uh, two subscriptions for two different providers. Okay, fair enough. Uh, some other random news: uh, Damien Collins Collins run rode 500k's one day in an indoor session, 14 yeah. hours and 10 minutes. Bugger that! Yeah, so I saw him post this on his Facebook page. Uh, I, I didn't really. Didn't really do the maths, but he cranked it out in pretty good time. 14 hours, 10 minutes, which was averaging 35 kilometres an hour. He was riding laps on Zwift, uh, average power of 187 watts. It's a long time to be on the trainer. Um, now, John, so, watts-wise, is, is that a pretty decent speed for your watts? <coughs> <coughs> Sorry about that, Bevan. Um, what, oh, what was your question? Is that a pretty decent that? speed for his watts? Um, it's pretty low power. I'm not sure how big a how big a guy he is. Um, if you've got a few people riding with you, you can keep your, oh, okay. your speed very high on, okay. on Zwift yeah. um, on the flats if you've got you know, a good draft going. Okay. Uh, whatever challenges we've got here, John, whatever piece of news we've got here. So Jordan Bryden um, popped me through an email. Uh, he's got a little challenge coming up that uh, has been set up. It's called StayRelentless.com. It's going to be on June the 6th, and it's a bit of a challenge for endurance junkies uh, and those in the ultra world. So we've had Jordan Bryden on the show a couple of times. He won Ultraman, and he was also on the team with Dee Dee Griesbauer that we interviewed him fairly recently when she oh, won, yeah. I think it was, Ultraman Florida. So Jordan set up a little challenge. Uh, it's on Zwift, and it's a 12- or 24-hour challenge. And a bit like what some people have been doing with their marathon challenges lately, where they were running um, what is a mile every yeah. hour for 24 hours. It's sort of similar to that. So he set up a, a lap on Zwift on the Tempest Fugit lap, which is 17.3 k's or 10.7 miles. And the idea is you have to do a lap of that course every hour for 12 hours or 24 How many miles hours. Is it? Uh, 10.7 so again you know if if you're going at a pretty decent clip for say um, you know it's going to be roughly half an hour to it for a lap say 30 to 45 minutes for a a lap yeah so you get means you get a little break each hour Um, the rules are you have to be you have to ride for 40 minutes every hour so if you do go out there and spank the lap and do it in half an hour you've got to tack on an extra 10 minutes so you start on the top of every hour you start you've got to do a lap and you either do it for 12 hours or 24 hours. So kind of cool little challenge, and Jordan, and amongst it, if you enter, you can get a 12-hour jersey or a 24-hour jersey if you complete it. But there is one little twist to it as well. He's added on the extra challenge that is kind of a, a go-until-you-drop challenge. So that means for those that are nutcases, they just keep going until it's last man standing. Oh, and really? that could get pretty silly. It could get pretty silly. Although you might not get me people doing it, so it might be just like 101. Yeah. Um, okay, the other piece of news, just kind of randomly, is Lucy College did 
Gossage, sorry, I should say, did everything on Zwift, which is a kind of another little crazy challenge lots of people are doing right now. It is, and you've got to go and do about 8,000 metres of climbing, uh, and most people do it on Alp to Zwift, just going up and down there. And what are you do that, John? Uh, I'm actually thinking about doing an Everest uh, later in the year, potentially, um, but I'd rather do it outside than inside. How long, you, how long would it take you? Well, Tyrone did it, and I think he was on the bike for about 12 hours, something like that, so it's a long time. You've and and, you, be... and you, can't, you can't have breaks, can you? Uh, you just got to do it. So you can take as long as you, you got to do it in a day. So you can take as long as you like. But and where did he do it? Well, there's there's an art, there's not an art form to that. Uh, they do it. Most people on Zwift do it on Alp to Zwift, which is out basically riding up and down Alp to S. Um, if you do it outside, you've got to kind of think about it. And I've got to start doing a bit more research on that in terms of the gradient you want. So you don't want something too steep, but you don't oh. want something too shallow. And then ideally, you have quite a steep uh, descent so you can get down and start climbing again. So you know you want to be trying to minimise the the length of time that you're out there. I did uh, five laps of Hackfield Road yesterday. With, you know, I'm, I'm kind of Started at the foot of Everest, I got a while to go. Yeah, you have. <laughs> on your bike or running? No, on my bike, yeah. Yeah. And so the challenge, like, the, the road that Bevan just talked about there, Hackthorn Road. Oh, so I went to the is, cup. The cup is, yep. is reasonably steep, and you don't necessarily want something too steep when you're, um, you know, you're seven or eight hours into the ride and you're but just maybe struggling. Maybe you do that second loop, which is probably not long enough, but if you did the loop from the cup to the tucky on Hackthorn, came back mm-hmm. down Dyers, mm-hmm. that's not too steep. Yeah, yep. I'll put that in the suggestion box. Uh, and then the final other little piece of news, if you want to ride the London PRL, which is the longest course on Zwift, I'll be doing that, the leading a group this weekend. So go on to imtalk.me, click on the little uh, button up the top that says camps and training and put your name down. And it's actually going to be part of a triathlon New Zealand ride that I'll be leading. So we should hopefully have a reasonable size group. So if you want to tick that one off, uh, it's going to be a biggie. And we're going to be on the bikes for a while. Okay, John, last week's discussion. We didn't get a huge amount of feedback on this one, but there are some good ones in here. The discussion was, what was the best free core and flexibility routines that you have found online? John, we started off and he's got there's lots of free yoga on YouTube. It's hard to say which one's best. Michael Taylor says Square One Physio have a fantastic collection on YouTube and live on Facebook, Pilates, Mobility and HIT. So Square One Physio is actually Cam Hansen and his wife's business. It's an Australian physio practice um, in Sydney. So if you actually need any physios, go and see Square One and also go to their website. Uh, Optimal Performance, they have a link to their Facebook page. They must have some stuff up there as well and around Pilates and movements like that. It's actually based out of Christchurch as well. Good old Gail Harvey Haywood says, Les Mills On Demand, CX Works. Uh, so if you want that, you need to sign up for lesmillsondemand.com and they have CX Works. I also got a bit of grit action there. I've done a few grit sessions. Oh, how are you finding that? Um, it's just, it's, it takes a bit of constant, bit more concentration than your standard sort of uh, core routine, but it's good. I wanted to get uh, just build back into my plyometrics. Yeah, it's um, a good way to get your top end hit plyo kind of training done uh, just mm. just with that Les Mills On Demand is a paid product but if you go on YouTube and you just search up like CX Workout a lot of instructors have to um, do their certification so they put it on YouTube now it's it's in comparison to pretty what low you, quality yeah pretty low quality but it's just a, if you want to get a feel for what the workout is before you invest in it it's a mm. good way of doing that now I would again as John's saying it's pretty budget it's someone recording off an iPhone but you get an idea of what the CX work is, it, workout is and John and I highly recommend I, I, I don't even teach it but I still do it once or twice a week by myself because I just think it's so good for my body um, so 
while you will have to pay for it if you want to do it as an ongoing thing, if you just want to get an idea for the workout, just do a search for CX Works on YouTube and you'll see some pretty low quality versions of it. Uh, cool. John, I'll go dunk it. Uh, did I say John Gordon redefining strength on YouTube? Uh, my memory is so good, I can't even remember, Bevan. Uh, I'll go Duncan Penfold. He says Eilish McLaughlin is a pro-British runner, and she's got uh, some clips on there around glute activation and core strength, so there's a link on our Facebook page. Uh, Ollie Clark's got the the Ready State, uh, and this is about strength work, and it looks like it's a pretty thorough website there as well. And then mm. lastly, John Clive uh, Rosenitsky, how do you say his last name? Rosanowski. Rosanowski. He's got Tantric Sex. I don't think that's YouTube. <laughs> I, don't think oh, the, I think you're on a different website. Sh- sure, you can find some stuff on YouTube. I'm going to do a search right now, John. Let's have a look. Tantric Sex on web, on YouTube. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. Uh, YouTube. The problem with you when you do a search on these things, YouTube's really basic with its algorithms because you search on one thing once, then suddenly everything's... Oh, I know. here we go. Tantric sex for beginners, John. There we go. Real time nice. exercises. <laughs> nice. <laughs> there we go. So, YouTube's got it all, team. Even if you want to be a tantric sex in your life. This week's discussion Challenge Daytona could be the biggest race of 2020 with a million dollar prize purse on the line and potential for the strongest field ever assembled given the lack of racing this year. Would you like to see any innovations brought into the pro race? And if so, what would you suggest? Yeah, so. I've just, again, I've sort of been watching the Formula One stuff and Super League, just little things. I think it, it would be quite cool to try a few semi-gimmicky things, you know, have, who can uh, record the fastest lap on the bike and the run and maybe the swim if it was a multi-lap swim, um, whether you had little things like uh, sprint, sprint primes um, where if you do the fastest straight within the race, maybe you get a... A short shoot on the run. I don't know. I, I'm just interested to see if people would rather just see a good old straight off half Ironman race or they'd like to actually see this uh, pumped up so we actually see a bit more excitement during the sort of three to four hours that they're going to be out there. Just one thing going back to last week on the discussion from this week. Uh, one that I use a lot on YouTube is Sarah Beth Yoga. Now, can I know a lot of people use yoga with um, Adrena or whatever her name is. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Sarah Beth. Sarah Beth is a bit more, I like her production better. Uh, it's, it's really good workouts. And there's different time ranges. So like if I used to come from a run, I want to do a 15 minute. She's got some really good workouts. That's one that I used to use any job. Um, we used to use chairs from Yoga Amazing oh, a little yeah. bit. Uh, and then I'm generally just on all the Liz Mills stuff. Okay, good times, rock and roll. Okay, John, let's do Whips of the Week before we do the interview. Whips of the Week. Of the week. It's kind of a lead into it's, this interview, really, because John's gone back and he's found a lot of a one coast-to-coast race, which is the race in New Zealand where they go from the west coast to the east coast of the South Island either one day or two days. But then he found a lot of Formula One action from the 90s and early 2000s. Mm. So firstly, the coast to coast, I just stumbled across this because Steve Knowles, who hosts a New Zealand uh, website called Sports Hub, uh, he must have filmed this in 2012, so it's a few years old, but it actually has got Richard Usher and Braden Curry on it, um, who both came across to, to triathlon. So yeah, it's, I think it was four four parts, so it's reasonably long sort of uh, doco on the on the event so if you've ever wanted to see what coast to coast is all about it's this will give you a really good eye open to it so we'll have a link on our website and then yeah the f1 stuff you know as you expect with 
footage from the 90s some of the the picture picture quality is is not the highest in terms of how that's been transferred onto youtube but yeah i found a couple of channels and a few people have posted things and so if you want to see what formula one looked like in the 90s check out some of these clips yeah okay well, a couple of them are gold because being australia and and a lot of the venues were I think they were all beach venues. Sometimes they sent them out in this awesome surf, and the guys just got pummeled. So <laughs> really? it, was, uh, it was good to see. <laughs> I tell you what, um, Adam, the guy we're about to interview, sent through some photos, just a couple of photos for our show notes. But geez, I tell you what, Macker and whoever was behind him in that second photo, just athletes, man, just looking amazing, weren't they? Mm. That was the day of the good old speedos and singlets. Oh, mate, I tell you what, their bodies are showed off. Now, we've got a great interview coming up. This is with Adam Bray. Him and along with his brothers are the people who founded Formula One in Australia. Great history of kind of what happened with the sport, how it started, what happened during the years it happened, and kind of how it wrapped up at the end. So here is Adam Bray right now. Okay, guys, um, obviously lots of you have been seeing Super League over the last um, sort of year or two, and as awesome as it is, there was a, a genesis to where where it all began, and that was the Formula One racing that uh, many of us older athletes happened to see in Australia in the 90s, and I always remember when I hear the stories about the racing, I, I didn't know who was behind it, and the people just said the Bray brothers, um, and I managed to do a bit of research, and I found Hayden um, Bray, and then he put me onto his brother Adam. Bray and there was another brother Damien as well so today we're going to find out a bit more about um, how Formula One racing started and the highs and the lows and how it all went so we've got Adam Bray on the line welcome to the show Adam. Yeah good morning guys uh, pleasure to be here. Um, oh, let's just set the scene first what what things were going down in Australia in the 90s when you sort of guys started off this whole venture because Australia was on a real sporting high leading up towards the 2000 olympics and you just in the 90s you seem to be dominating um many many sports so maybe just lay, lay the land about what you were doing before formula one happened and and how this all sort of came about yeah thank you uh well in the late 80s uh early 90s 1991 um we my brothers and i we'd we'd all played um elite level afl uh, which is obviously stadium spectator broadcast friendly in terms of a uh, in terms of sporting content, um, and we were coming to the end of our uh, end of our football careers, um, and obviously looking for something to stay fit. So we uh, we we ventured into triathlon. Um, what we I guess the 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 thing about triathlon back in those days, and and probably still is from an age group mass market perspective is early mornings, you know, early mornings in faraway places so that roads could be closed and um, councils and police can coordinate that with uh, with event organisers uh, to make things safe and, um, uh, and you know, not disturb the, uh, the general public too much. So, yeah, triathlon was really seen back in those days as a... Um, uh, you know, a bit of a, a bit of an adventure sport for fitness freaks. Um, you know, I think uh, the you know the evolution from the elite side of triathlon started way back then. But distances and the accessibility, um, and I guess the viewability of the sport was um, uh, wasn't there. It was very much. Um, I'm sure you guys participated in many events mm. as other people did around the world. It was very much a um, you know for the athlete. Um, and not particularly interesting from a you know from a spectator perspective, which thus flows through to media and, and other elements of uh, of interest. 
Mm. So, yeah, so the sport was bubbling along. Um, and the first time I witnessed one was my brother Hayden was in what was the Triple M triathlon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> back in the day, that would have been late 80s, I would would have uh, would hazard a guess. Um, and that was... Um, uh, that was pretty big, but that was that was sponsored and funded via you know the launch of FM radio and the major radio broadcaster being Triple M back in those days. And uh, and from memory, Mark Dragon was uh, the victor of that event, but that was really modelled on Ironman you know type of proportions and distances and uh, and intriguing from an endurance perspective. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's uh, that, that's where we, where we all started out. And so, in terms of your professional background, I know you said you're an elite, um, elite you know, AFL player. But what were you? Were you and your brothers in terms of qualifications? In terms of where your careers were going? What what were, what were your backgrounds? Yeah, we um, uh, had a uh, mixed background. Our uh, younger brother Damien, he was um, uh, was uh, the first uh, Sydney based player to be recruited by the Sydney Swans, which was yeah. when AFL was going national. They uh, they moved the South Melbourne Football Club to Sydney um, and uh, obviously had a lot of success over the years and pretty high profile, you know, 30 years later. Yeah. Um, Hayden was in the back end of his AFL career. He was also recruited um, uh, by the Sydney Swans and um, uh, and I guess he fell into triathlon um uh, you know, due to the fact that he was, you know, late late twenties, early thirties, and, and probably missed the uh, the run from a um, professional footy career at that level. But we all played prior to AFL going national in the you know first grade football in Sydney competition. From a business perspective, um, uh, Hayden was in uh, was a media planning strategist or media director of a uh, large advertising company, which. Uh, uh, dealt with some some global brands and some multinational brands, and um, uh, and obviously part of that media planning and, and media spending with clients' money um, uh, enabled him to have very close contacts with um, with national broadcasters and broadcast TV relevant to this discussion. Uh, Damien was um, running gymnasiums and um, and and playing footy, um, and uh, I had a actually a construction company, um, a national construction company, mostly east coast based, and um, uh, that had been going since um, you know since my my mid twenties. So yeah, from from mixed backgrounds, um, I guess on my side, uh, you know, owning and operating. A construction company from young age teaches you, you know, business skills, organisation skills, and um, yeah, methodical planning uh, and and skills like that, which became you know pretty valuable to us on the um, on the F one journey that lay ahead. Mm. So how? Do, I mean, I know I was involved in the sport, you know, around this sort of time, and as you said, it was sort of bubbling away. The sport was was progressing, numbers were growing, but it was very much a participation early morning sport. And so you've sort of, how did this opportunity come up to to set up the Formula One? Was it somebody approaching you guys? Did you guys come up with the idea? Just sort of lay down how it actually came about to having your very first race. Well, in 1991, um, we parted with Nike, um, and I guess this was our first entry level into this. Is Hayden and myself? Damien was uh, was still focused on kicking the uh, kicking the AFL <laughs> ball around the swans, um, and uh, we parted with Nike, and we we started a what was called the Nike Sprint Series, and uh, that uh, had 
age group um, categories and also had elite categories uh, within it. So that uh, enabled us to be introduced to, you know, the, the elite athletes in Australia, um, both male and female. So, you know, McKeely Jones was, um, you know, a young up-and-coming female athlete. Obviously, Greg Welsh mm-hmm. uh, was on the scene and, um, uh, you know, Victorians Stephen Foster and Tim Bentley and those type of names. So that, that was a national event that we did for Nike. It wasn't broadcast. It was um, purely, a, once again, one of those early morning events. But what we figured out is that um, you know, even back in that early stage of, of our you know, triathlon promotion you know, careers, if you like, was um, that if we put the elites on last, um, we'd at least have a built-in audience being all the age groupers who could see their heroes and their, you know, and their stars. Um, competing and and we have played around with distances a little bit to you know to make the viewing so the elite courses were different to the age group courses um for example so that um you know we'd make things a little more contact so that was compact rather so that was the precursor to you know what's ultimately became you know known as formula one grand prix racing in in australia Nice. Um, and what, t- tell us about your first races. I think it was 1994 was your first race. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but just sort of run us through, you know, the steps to actually making it happen. You know, who was doing what in terms of you and your brothers, and uh, how you how you really got it off the ground. Well, the first um, the first series actually is as um, as Chris McCormack or Macker, as we affectionately refer to him, would uh, testify. It's 12 months into planning before you actually get to, you know, fire the starting gun at, uh, at race one, you know, series one in 94. So uh, it, that's so off the back of that Nike sprint series. There was a, uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, business to business um, elements going on, um, which, you know, competitors probably don't appreciate the, um, the time investments and the, um, and the negotiations and things that are required. But, what we had in Australia was a example on – there was three major TV networks, uh, Network 10, uh, who's our broadcast partner, Network 7 and Network 9. So um, between 9 and 7, they'd, you know, they'd have cricket, um, you know, horse racing and other, other summer sports. And Network 10 was seen as the uh, – obviously the most opportune partner for us because that historically – for, for I think about the past three years had broadcast the Surf Ironman series. Um, so, you know, fair to say, you know, that, uh, you know, um, you know, Trevor Handy, Guy Leach and Grant Kenny, who were the three big Surf Ironman names of the day, there's probably more the boys. Um, mm. I left them out, but uh, that, they were the big household names and there was a breakfast cereal um, sponsored that had, uh, that had pumped a couple of million dollars in each year to, uh, to broadcast that. So, I guess that was our vision to bring triathlon to, you know, to people's lounge rooms, um, and um, yeah, and, and take it to the next level. But how how do you achieve that when when you're starting out? So fortunately, um, as I said earlier, Hayden was uh, reasonably influential in the media business with some you know some very big clients. Uh, all of those clients use broadcast television, you know, to advertise their products and services. Um, and uh, and therein lay the relationships with the broadcaster. So um, that was, uh, I guess, the turning point and, and the main opportunity that uh, that we had. Because a, a we had brands um, that 
obviously would be able to facilitate the enormous budgets that it requires to, you know, to organise and stage a series such as the F1 um, and uh, and then a broadcaster is willing to devote, you know, two hours of their Sunday afternoon peak sporting time to, um, to triathlon, which was, in their eyes, it, it, it did take a lot of convincing on those guys because, you know, they knew it as a something that guys driving around in their expensive BMWs with $10,000 bikes strapped on the back would head out to a car park, you know, in the, in the out, of, out of reaches of, uh, of suburbia and um, participate in the sport. So, um, yeah, you know, the, the broadcasters who were, you know, network cameras and motor racing, um, you know, very blokey, um, you know, type of sporting broadcaster. Um, mm. So, yeah, yeah. Um, BMWs with expensive bikes and guys with shaved legs was a different uh, bit of a reach for those guys. <laughs> so how big an operation is it? Like, so we, we see Super League, and I'm not sure if you still follow the sport now, but to actually get things up and going, you know, and whether you, I don't know whether you can talk, you know, how much money it actually costs or how big an operation it is to actually make make this these first races happen. Yeah, it is a it is an enormous undertaking, um, both financially and um, and happy happy to you know sort of touch on um, you know, on type of budget ranges that are required, but um, in terms of infrastructure uh, and resourcing, um, it's uh, it's a pretty extensive uh, process to go through. Um, so the first step is obviously securing broadcasting. Once you've secured that, um, obviously you have something to you know to attract brands and more importantly their media budgets and their sponsorship budgets so traditionally sport back in those days would um or sporting organizations would go to a brand and 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 hope that the brand saw some synergy between their brand values and the sport um and that's um yeah like beer and meat pies you know sort of bit of natural fit for football and and things like that so triathlon um uh you know required that, well, we couldn't really identify any brands outside of the breakfast cereal and the healthy, you know, FMCG mm. food supermarket brands um, that would be relevant um, or would have the size budget that's available. So it's a two point, you know, it, back in 94, the budget for the launch of the F1 is 2.4, 2.5 million Australian dollars. So that's mm. about that's about 500K per, per event. It was a five event series. Um, so yeah, pretty pretty fraidy, um, uh, fraidy stuff. And um, mm. whilst we're all doing pretty well with our uh, with our own businesses, we, um, we we didn't really have that sort of capital to stump up. So yeah. so yeah, so really, uh, it's now referred to in the industry as brand funded entertainment. Um, so that's the avenue that we went down, and we secured um, Tui's Blue, which is a low alcohol um, beer. So Obviously, they had they had the budget. Um, they had the back in those days. You could advertise, um, you know, beer in uh, in afternoon time slots. Now it's, mm-hmm. now it's after your kids have gone to bed, um, sort of eight nine o'clock at night. Um, but yeah, so they uh, that that fitted the bill. We also bought in a technology company. Um, we bought Gatorade on board, and um, we brought Reebok on board as a natural fit. So. All of those brands had media budgets for broadcast television, um, mm. being you know thirty second TV commercials, uh, and they would benefit from a commercial package that would give them you know, uh, entitlements through the broadcast, 
and obviously you know, signage and branding entitlements at the event, um, and that would flow through. But the, the key to all of that was how do we make triathlon entertaining? Um, so yeah, having all of us had a background, as I said earlier, in stadium sports, people, you know, pull up a plastic seat and um, sit there and watch you kick the footy around for, for a couple of hours. So um, we thought, you know, we, we teamed up with actually with Mark Dragon, Greg Welsh and, and some, of the, some of the other guys who'd, who'd had more global exposure to events. And, um, and we said, okay, guys, how do we uh, – so it was a bit of a committee that we put together mm-hmm. uh, with the elite athletes to get their input. Uh, we didn't want to take that arrogant promoter approach and – um, and set something up without, you know, having a lot of integration and input from the athletes. Um, so we we said, okay, well, how, how do we how do we create something which we can point ten television cameras at so that we can give the the sponsors, you know, their return on investment that they're seeking in terms of brand exposure, um, and then create a static viewing environment for the on-site audience and create enough thrills and spills and and I guess closeness of competition that if you're sitting in your lounge room you you know you're going to be sitting on the edge of your lounge instead of you know back and chilling because you're cheering on you know the croc Brad Bevan or, mm-hmm. or the young Miles Stewart busting through or in later years Spencer Smith and you know and, and those sorts of guys that um that, that came along as, as the years unfolded so so really developing unique what's now known as I guess F1 or you know Grand Prix format racing was uh, was really the key to it because it it covered a lot of bases. It delivered for the sponsors, um, pointing ten television cameras at you know at a bunch of triathletes in a circuit racing environment, uh, closed circuit racing environment. Um, you know, uh, became very entertaining um, to to both on-site viewers and more importantly the broadcast viewers at home. Explain, explain for those who, because it was big in Australia and, and quite big in New Zealand at the same time, but yeah. for a lot of people around the sea, around the world, they don't really know exactly how the F1 kind of series works. So maybe just give us a, a kind of a basic overview of how the racing went. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, the, we did have uh, Hamish Carter, who I don't know. Yeah, well, it, it, he became a legend, and it was partly because of what you guys were doing. Correct. So that's the reason I mentioned that is, you know, I guess, you know, Trans-Tasman and um, and obviously in Australia, these guys became household names like Brad Bevan, the croc. Okay, Brad won the initial Tui's Blue Series and drove off in a Ford car. Ford was one of the sponsors I forgot to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that had croc number plates. And, you know, when, when you've got an average audience of, you know, 2.4 million Australians, you know, looking at a television set, for a couple of hours on, you know, five Sunday afternoons across your summer, um, you're, uh, you're obviously the athlete profiles are going to grow, as is the following of the sport, and that flows through to grassroots participation, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which uh, I think what you said earlier, building through the 90s through to the Olympics, Australia being very strong and dominant, um, you know, not, not taking, you know, all of the credit for that, but definitely the F1 Grand Prix, in terms of younger aspiring athletes looking at that and choosing that as their sporting career path, um, you know, it was, uh, was pretty influential. Um, and, and then with our, with our sponsorship programs, you know, after TUI's um, contract, we, we partnered with St George Bank um, and they became the naming rights sponsor for about, for about five years from memory. And, 
Part of that included them sponsoring Triathlon Australia's Grassroots Series, which was age group and Olympic distance, which is the was the qualifying dynamics for the Olympics. Um, so, yeah, so it was actually, I guess, our border of negotiations with marketing directors at St George uh, that enabled the you know, a brand to put an umbrella sponsorship over the entire sport, which guided it through and funded it through to the, um, you know, the 2000 Olympics. So, so how were the athletes um, paid? You know, I know, I, I remember they were contracted and you had X number of contracted athletes. You know, how big a proportion of their money was um, in that contract versus, you know, prize money, et cetera? Well, prize money, I mean, the first series two is blue, obviously beer and beer and um and then guys fitted well together. Um, yet the second year was St George Bank funded, so there was gender equity. We introduced the women's series in that year. Um, that had a one-hour television package, and the, the guys had a two-hour live broadcast package. So um, that, uh, that 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 balance was interesting. But the um, prize money from memory, you know, hundred thousand um, dollars, you know, per race. You know, so a half a million dollar prize pool, and then in terms of contract fees, obviously, uh, you know, it's great you're creating household names, and that um, these athletes are you know creating value for themselves both at home and internationally. I'm talking Greg Welsh and you know and Brad Bevan, you know, predominantly they were our number one and two contracted athletes, so they're really important to. You know, really important assets to the development and the um and the success of the series. So they were on appearance fees. Um, I won't disclose that, but mm. um, but um, you know, let's say uh, we're always welcome in the Bevan and the Welsh households. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't dare to say we still are. So um, yeah, so so those guys were on. Uh, that was. It was a top 10 contract structure in place, which was transparent and open. And then there was, you know, appearance, personality contracts, you know, normal endorsement of the series contracts for those top two guys, um, you know, over and above the, you know, the uh, the, the top 10. Um, and that's, yeah, I don't mind if, you know, Troy yeah. Fiedler and other guys who might have a view on that um, want, to, want to pick up on the podcast, but um, yeah. that was... That was that was understandable. As promoters, you need to you know secure your assets to make sure that um, you know you've you've got the ingredients that you need to make the whole series successful. Now, well, a lot of people will have never have seen any of the footage, and there is there is still a little bit floating around on YouTube. But maybe tell yeah. us a bit about some of the the venues you used and some of the um, innovations. So I remember one event you plonked a swimming pool down um, somewhere on a waterfront, and it might not have been a waterfront, but you had a portable swimming pool that was also used for other events. Uh, then you had these big U-turn type um, skateboard type ramps. So maybe tell us about some of the innovations you brought into to some of the races especially as the the series developed yeah for sure well the um once again that was uh, some of those innovations were to create entertainment um and that was the whole i guess the mantra of you know our organization back in those days so the the first thing was developing formats so the formats were developed with the athletes and Obviously, traditional triathlon, swim, bike, run, um, if you if you swim okay and can sort of hang on to the, the feet of the top, you know, a couple of bunch of swimmers and 
and cycle pretty well, particularly in circuit racing like ours. If you if you you know sort of in the first or second pack, you're you're in reasonably good shape. So if we just did swim bike run formats, um, and I'm sure you know Chris McCormack and the guys with Super League now you know are well aware of this that it really becomes a runners uh, event. Um, so what we wanted to do is put a balance between the three disciplines of swimming, cycling, and running, um, and mix the formats up. So in in you know, extensive consultation and debate and and input from uh, the athlete committee, uh, we developed form three formats primarily. One was called the triple super sprint, which was over two hour period or two hour broadcast, probably meant about an hour thirty five of actual live racing time. Um, the rest was commentary and previewing. So a triple super sprint would be, for example, three sh- three short races um, with uh, with a with a short break in between the um, the three races. Um, and I, my memory doesn't serve me correctly on the distances, but it was balanced and worked and modelled off a pro rata structure from what would what's now known as Olympic distance. So. Mm. Um, so yeah, so uh, three short races, swim, cycle, run would be the first one. Um, uh, bike, uh, bike, run, swim um, could have been the second one in that order. So we wouldn't. We'd obviously always finish under a finish arch. So the swim leg would have a short run to the finish line, um, which I'll talk about venues and that in a minute. Mm. So it was obviously challenging to find the right venues to accommodate these formats and then the uh the third race would uh would change the disciplines around again so that would take the advantage away from the runner so if you're if you're you know, and also the yeah i'm sure as the athletes would testify very challenging because as you know you know i've done a bit of ironman racing and other things when and your body gets conditioned to those three disciplines and that's what you train for. You obviously change for transition and change over, and you know, and being ready to perform you know, the next discipline, you know, at your at your ultimate potential. So when you start mixing it up, very interesting and and very challenging on the fitness and the training techniques. And I think all in all, using that format as an example, um, yeah, made the Australian athletes better rounded and more competitive globally because you know, it's it's really pushing the boundaries in terms of you know their fitness levels and their training techniques so that was one of the formats um another one was enduro which was a greg welsh favorite you know <laughs> for, as, the, as the word indicates it's um it was a non-stop event um but it wasn't um it wasn't swim bike run it would have it would mix up so that the would be there'd be nine circuits of the three disciplines if that makes sense um, but, but pretty much once the starting gun goes until someone takes the finishing tape, you know, you're, uh, you're on the move. Um, and that was, in distance-wise, it's probably about 20% more than a normal Olympic distance event if you, uh, if you mm-hmm. cumed all the distance together. Uh, and then there was an eliminator. So the eliminator was very interesting from an audience, um, both television and on-site perspective. So it was... Uh, it's three short races, but um, five athletes. There's 25 athletes in the field to start with, but we chop five each time. Um, so if you're uh, if you're in the you know if you're cruising at the back, thinking that you're getting ready for the third race, well, you may not make it through to the second to obviously get to the third, and the prize money would escalate, you know, between mm-hmm. the three races in a uh, in an eliminator format. So that was um 
for memory, that was our. Uh, there may have been one other format, but they're the ones that um, sort of, in terms of the acronyms that we gave them, um, mm. the nickname gave those formats, and um, and that's uh, that's where we went. So venue wise, um, you mentioned swimming pools. In the first year, we we did an indoor event. I think it was probably the second one in the world. I think the French mm. tr- tried to do one. Uh, Earlier, but we we used one of those formats. I think it was a triple super sprint, and we did it indoors. So that was quite an engineering feat. There was a above ground swimming pool, you know, made by um, uh, you know specialist engineers. Uh, so there was <laughs> there was twenty five lanes, and it was twenty five meters in length. Yeah. So wow. you, the, the engineering feat was um, was you know, obviously these guys are very competitive swimmers, particularly in a pool environment. So, you know, 25 um, tumble turns hitting a wall of an, uh, of an above-ground pool was, um, uh, was something that we had to really, you know, sit there and scratch the whiteboard and engineer correctly so that um, we didn't uh, <laughs> have an exploding swimming pool. Um, so uh, we successfully overcame that. So, yeah, we, we did an indoor event. That was um, obviously athletes like, you know, Miles Stewart who'd, um, you know, had a bit of velodrome experience as kids, you know, um, relished in that environment. But I think still um, for memory, Brad Bevan was, you know, still probably very dominant um, as he in, on that day and as he was through, you know, through the, the whole, you know, Grand Prix series. Um, and then, yeah, we, we took this swimming pool. Like if we couldn't find an environment where, as I said earlier, the finish line could be close enough for the swim finish event to enable a short run to the finish line we're like well hell let's just um we've we built this pool we've used it indoors let's use it outdoors um so uh it was great actually because you know the 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 pool swimming you know dynamic in terms of covering uh the closeness um you can't sit on anybody's feet you know so you know if you you know there's there's less of a drag weight advantage um so it kind of evened things up but Probably more importantly, from a broadcast perspective, um, you know, with uh, four cameras pointed at a swimming pool, you know, with all the angles that are that they're available, it's um it makes for some pretty cool coverage. And then also the the transitions is you know traditional triathlon. We've got you know we've got two transitions. You can imagine in these formats, you've got multiple transitions. So the mayhem that's going on in a transition and the smoothness and you know, how relaxed you need to be when your heart rate is maxed out, you know, going through these multiple transitions really, really challenged the athletes. But I think, as I said earlier, really honed their skills and their fitness and, and their and, and their level of athletes to put them in the, you know, the top echelon globally. Just, just you know, uh, like, and then, oh, sorry, go. Sorry, and then the, the other one you mentioned was what we called the bike bowl. So, yeah, it looked like a, um, it looked like a, uh, a quarter pipe at a, at a pretty large skate park, but um, that was a couple of semi-trailer loads to to ship around the country. Um, and the idea of that was really a to create a mini version of the end of a velodrome, and it mm. was pretty pretty steep. Um, uh, and it required a. Um, I remember the first time we set it up, the guys they spent the whole day prior um, just trying to figure this thing out <laughs> and, and, and sling into it. And it had, um, anti-slip surfaces from marine grade, you know, paints, of course, it was heavily branded from a sponsor perspective. So it acted as a, as a big billboard, but also just put another skill element into, um, 
into the racing and the guys who figured it out were able to ride in pretty quick and then slingshot their way out so yeah it's a bit of a uh, bit bit of bit of theater and a bit of drama created on at the uh, the bike bowl I'm sure there's there's awesome experiences watching these things come to fruition, but were there any real big cock-ups where you're like, oh my God, what, what have we done here and let's get this race over and done with kind of thing? The, not not from so much from the race, but yeah, you, you're right. I mean, the, as I said, it's 12 months in the planning. Um, you've got a, uh, you know, you're doing a national series, so each state in in, uh, in Australia has different different police forces, different local governments, different councils, you've got to deal with uh, with all of that. Um, I guess one of the advantages we had is in terms of road usage, we were, because we're circuit racing, we weren't closing you know, the, the extensive amount of kilometres that you're doing in an Olympic distance mm-hmm. event. Um, but then in saying that, we're in the afternoon. You know, we're broadcasting three to five on a Sunday afternoon. So, and, and we'd have to go to iconic you know, densely populated areas such as Manly Beach. Um, so, you know, we became pretty good at negotiating and selling our wares and the, you know, the tourism benefits um, and the exposure benefits via television of the venue and of the of the locations. So, yeah, so also you've got to put your marketing cap on and and go in and um, yeah and and look at it. And say, okay, well, the, your your local city, your local area is going to benefit from two point four million Australians viewing it on a Sunday afternoon for the major broadcaster. So that, um, but yeah, in terms of horrors, the only one that I remember was year one with that indoor event that I referred to. We were at the Adelaide Superdome, um, and Mike Turter, who's the next um, next Olympic cyclist, who was the manager, and it was a brand new facility. Um, and I remember Mike's lovely guy, but uh, particularly fussy and protective of his um, of his floor surface. So, so, so obviously to build a pool and bring all that infrastructure in, you've got forklifts and other uh, other um, heavy machinery. So I remember, you know, just the Mike standing there constantly, you know, uh, watching the weight load on the track and and other things, which is which is understandable. But uh, you know, as a uh, as a promoter who's running a timeline. Um, and whilst my building company operational, you know, logistic experience came in handy, it was uh, it was challenging negotiating the build on that one. And then to top, to top, top it all off, we um, uh, we filled the the pool from the fire hydrants, which um, you know, we thought, okay, well, Adelaide water was wasn't renowned, you know, for for being dirty and brown, but when you pump it from the fire hydrants, it is. So. Oh. You know, <laughs> With a, uh, with a swimming pool in an indoor arena with brown water and <laughs> there was two blue sponsor logos and high camera shots planned and um and it yeah it really looked like you were you know, swimming in the local dam um after, <laughs> after heavy rainfall so that was uh that was particularly stressful and as i said it was year one um with a, a particular fussy marketing director uh, for the Tui's brand, who's a great mate, um, but is definitely stretching the friendship. When uh, when he flew in from from his Sydney office into Adelaide, and um, and we'd we'd spent three days half pumping out. We'd brought specialists in with chemicals <laughs> to block the pool, and we'd vacuumed it probably twenty times, and brought additional vacuum equipment in. So the boy, we we're working twenty four hours to clean it up, but we didn't get it quite right. So. 
And if there is any vision on YouTube, that's um, it probably looks like beer, but that wasn't the intention. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, one area that I, I really want to ask about, and, and I've, there's so little information about this. Uh, I, 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 I just, I'm, I'm not sure if you're the right man to talk to or not. 1996, I think it was, they had the International Grand Prix was established. And again, I was sort of involved in the sport. I was a, a junior, not a, not a crash hot elite or anything like that. But the International yep. Grand Prix was, was set up, and I think you guys were doing that as well. Um, maybe explain what it was, how it came about, uh, who you had, and, and geez, the, the roadblocks you got put in place um, from ITU and, and, and others. Yeah, it did. Uh, it, that was that was from us. So obviously, the Aussie confidence in what we'd done with our national, you know, Grand Prix series here, um, yeah, which was I think probably four or five years. Um, no, it's about three, four years in. We um, we were viewed by ITU as um, as a bit of a breakaway. I mean, we had a great relationship with Triathlon Australia, the governing body here, um, and obviously, well, you know, the president. Um, of the uh, organisation at the time. He was also a Manly local. Our office was in Manly that had grown to about 40-odd 40, 40 people working full-time on the series, gives you an indication of resources mm-hmm. required. But um, but from a ITU perspective, which um, yeah, dear old Les McDonald was, um, you know, uh, heading it up at the time, it was seen, you know, as a bit of a rebel um, series internationally. Um, and a bit of a breakaway, and 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 I think that probably was um, born by a little bit of a uh, little bit of jealousy, and on one side, and a little bit of you know, um, I guess purist type of thinking. In that, the Olympic format is the one that had been pitched to the IOC, um, and for a member of the Australian Olympic Committee were very involved in Grand Prix racing. Um, they were at all our events in our VIP area. Phil Coles was the main mm. guy that became, you know, pretty good friends with Phil. So um, nationally in Australia, you know, very tight at all levels. And actually, um, you know, the Australian Olympic Committee, I remember, you know, looking at a lot of our formats and, and, and probably saying, well, okay, maybe these are better. As uh, maybe one of these is better as a as an Olympic format because because of the virtues of being able to point television cameras at it, being able to put it in a you know, in a grandstand environment, and sell tickets, which obviously Olympic Games is a commercial enterprise as well. So I, I, I won't dwell too much on that, but um, I, so I think that was the view of the ITU that potentially our formats were threatening to the Olympic format, which they'd lobbied and. Les and his um, and yeah and and people in you know, heads of triathlon associations around the world had spent a lot of time and effort to push that forward to the IOC. So understood all that, and we weren't here to interfere with that. We saw ourselves as complementing and profiling the sport to help it get to the Olympics, and and I, I think we did that successfully in Australia. But um, so the International Triathlon Grand Prix or ITGP as we called it. Um, probably pretty similar to what uh, Macca is, you know, has developed now. I don't really follow triathlon much these days. I've, um, you know, sort of in my in my, my late fifties, so you know, I, uh, I, I run along the beach and a and a surfboard under arm is probably more more in keeping with my exercise. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so uh, 
the mission there once the challenges there were we knew that you you don't generate any significant levels of funding without without broadcast so I, you know, jumped on multiple planes. Um, I actually moved to San Diego and, um, you know, lived down the street from Greg Welsh. Um, and I think, uh, you know, half of us, half of the Australian team were residing over there in the off-season and, and considered that was probably the mecca of triathlon in terms of, you know, training and uh, and livability um, back in the 90s. Uh, so so we... We moved to the to the states. It's uh, myself and also my brother Damien and our young families, um, and uh, travelled extensively around the world to set up the IT uh, International Triathlon Grand Prix. So, um, went to Europe, negotiated with Eurosport to cover the uh, all of the events, and uh, then had yeah, really pushing the boundaries in terms of you know cities and. Street closures you know we closed you know the main street of Waikiki in Hawaii um, for our Hawaiian event uh, we closed a significant tourist area in Koblenz where um, uh, Jürgen Zack is from so mm. uh, Jürgen so well, we kind of picked um, areas where we had a, uh, a connection you know so we knew Jürgen through Welshie for example so we used a network of well to to get us into there, so Jurgen helped us with uh, uh, with the German opportunity with local promoters joining. So, like Chris McCormack would be encountering now, you need as the I guess the lead brand or the lead promoter, you've got to partner with a local in each territory who's got mm. you know the skill and experience to to pull that off. Um, so, aside from the ITU politics, which was so we were seen as rebels um, in that uh, with you know when we were embarking on that. Um, and also the ITU were a bit against us contracting talent. Now, we didn't contract talent. Um, once again, I can't sit with a Eurosport who's going to throw, you know, uh, five lots of two-hour blocks of, of broadcast at us for nothing, mm. uh, which is it's pretty amazing because it, you know, cost a couple, it costs about a quarter of a million dollars to produce, you know, a Grand Prix from a television perspective. Um you know, with helicopters and bikes and uplinks and and the rest of it and big OB vans, it's quite a um you know when you when you're broadcasting live sport, it's not um you know it's not a cost effective exercise. So um so we we actually partnered with from a funding perspective um uh, James Packer, whose father <laughs> was known as the wealthiest man in Australia, and and I think but, the family pretty, pretty well known, yeah. So uh, once again, a bit of a stretch. You know, those guys are into horse racing and polo, and um, yeah, a, a bunch of other things as you would be if you got a lot of you know, many, many zeros on your bank accounts. But um, yeah, so we we partnered with James, um, and James funded seventy percent, and we funded the other thirty percent because the challenge, as that's where where I was getting to before with uh, with Maca and his Super League, getting an umbrella sponsor. In Australia, is you know, and a naming rights sponsor was, wasn't easy, but obviously we had the the right proposition to attract you know that that sponsor investment. Um, but to do it internationally, more challenging. So you know we had we had Gatorade, um, you know, but they they were heavily involved in Ironman, um, you know, back in that day, and I'm not sure they still are, but you know Gatorade sponsored our series in Australia. Um, but yeah, to to get a international brand how international brands work even coke is that the 
whilst they're global brands, the investment decision and their marketing activation happens locally. So you have to pull, you know, Coke budgets from Germany, Coke budget from the UK, you know, Coke budget from Australia, Coke budget from Thailand, Coke budget from the US for the Hawaiian and the Carlsbad Californian event. So super challenging and uh, let's say we weren't successful in you know, in generating that blanket, you know, uh, sponsorship um, that, uh, that was required. But, uh, but yeah, in terms of athletes, um, it was a who's who, you know. Yeah. And, through to Mark Allen, um, you know, uh, Scott Tinley. I remember Scott harassed me constantly when I was living in the States. Um, you know, Adam, can I please race? I'm mate, you're too old. You're too old. You can't, you're not going to cut it. This is a different form of racing. It's not, you know, you know, I said, love to have you there, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, we ended up, I, I capitulated and, um, and we let Scott participate. How did we go? Yeah, well, I, I think he realised what I was talking about. I was, <laughs> I, was, I was doing him a favour and saying, "Stay home, mate." So, <laughs> so um, did the ITGP? Was that only one season? It was only one season. Um, you know, but yeah, we had Simon Lessing um, yeah. and, uh, and and Spencer and Spencer Smith who'd raced in Australia with us. So pretty much, it was you know. A good representation. I won't say I won't insult other athletes who weren't involved, but um, you know it, it was a who's who in terms of you know, multiple Hawaiian Ironman uh, winners. Um, you know, first obviously Welshie being the first non-American to ever win the Hawaiian Ironman. And it's been a um, there's been a procession of Aussies and Europeans since that. Mm. But um, it was yeah, just, so just it was, not sustainable. Financially, like like just the yeah, work. Uh, yeah. Financially, it was um, uh, luckily we had the uh, the backing of um, yeah Australia's wealthiest um, businessman um, mm. because uh, yeah it was um, financially it was very challenging and um, it uh, there was uh, there was brackets around the end result mm. when you look at it on a um, on a P and L perspective so um, that's why it was only one season only one year. Um, and uh, and didn't didn't rebound from that, which was you know super disappointing for us. Obviously, relocating your family and um, you know, and it's probably you know not that I disappoint you know not that I regret many things in my life. I don't regret doing it, but yeah, you know, I do regret that it didn't um, it didn't fire up as as it had in Australia. So mm. so yeah, we we retreated back to Australia and um, and focused on our domestic series um, and developing. Yes, the. The only really positive that came out of it from a personal perspective is that during the time in the States, we were able to see the the X Games, the ESPN X Games, um, and we subsequently, uh, you know, uh, I'll say mirrored uh, the concept because ESPN refused to work with us, so they were just a bunch of young Aussies. Um, <laughs> I didn't, didn't quite know the handle that, and the, I guess, the network that we had down under. Um, so we came home and started our own um, extreme games, which turned into a brand called Planet X and the major youth um, television program in the country, and um, and 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 that was a you know, five six year success story as a as a brand, um, as an entertainment brand for uh, for youth in Australia. So that was um yeah. There's always a silver lining out of uh, you know you, you you as I said you relocate to America with your young family you fly around the world for 12 months to set something up, um, put your heart and soul and your cash into it, and then uh, if that doesn't kick on, well, you know, you know fortunately, so, you know, uh, something else does. 
So in terms of how the F1, you know, obviously it's not still going now. Um, how did it sort of finish up? You know, you, you mentioned there about this X Games type thing you, you introduced. H- how did um, F1 sort of conclude and, and why? Well, we, we yeah, as a, as a company, so we were behind IMG. We'd grown to the number two sports marketing you know, company in Australia, uh, which was great, and um, you know our revenues were were significant, um, and we were approached by you know, multiple sports um, brands and even other broadcast networks to create content. Um, so really, we 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 ended up being you know, content creators. We we picked up the ASP Surfing World Tour um, to you know to make that television friendly. Um, so really, the the business exploded from. You know, our initial um, uh, event, if you like, our initial um, uh, forerunner uh, content being triathlon. Um, we added a bunch of other triathlon events. So our support sponsors of the Grand Prix all wanted the, a piece of the action. So, you know, we did um, uh, we did try Iron Challenges, which was, uh, you know, the top 10 triathletes versus the top 10 surf Ironmen. Um, did that up in Hamilton Island, um, did it out in Lord Howe Island. So a lot of made-for-television, you know, derivatives of triathlon. Um, with Xerox, we did a uh, – Fuji Xerox, we did a um, an outback uh, kind of Tour de France type of triathlon event. So there was, there was racing every day and the guys had to back up for about a 10 or 12-day period, mm-hmm. which was challenging for them. So um, – reason I say that is not to beat the chest, but we really maximised, you know, I guess triathlon content in terms of viewers and in terms of sponsorship. And the the disadvantage that occurs as a um, as a marketing organisation when you do such a great job for the brand and you've sold them title rights, for example, St George Triathlon Grand Prix. If St George decide that um, yeah, after five years yeah, they want to part ways, um, and normally that happens because it's a change in senior management or a change, you know, the bank gets bought out by Westpac or whatever. Mm. So, you know, there's rationalisation, and you know, uh, banks are banks, banks are strange beasts anyway. But um, uh, but yeah, so so St George and uh, and us wanted to part ways. It was amicable. It was the end of, end of a contract, so there was you know nothing. But they didn't renew. And but then you've got something that's for five years. You've done a fantastic job, as people referring to it as the St George Series or the St George GP or the St George F1. Mm-hmm. You know all of those. Um, you've then got to, you know, throw your laptop in your backpack and um, you know, sling a jacket on and go and bounce around a bunch of other boardrooms and try to you know generate two point five million dollars. You know, for for an asset that's heavily branded, you know, for somebody else. So um, that's uh, uh, being realistic. That was probably the you know the the main reason. Once again, financial um, and and us being yeah you know, overzealous, over enthusiastic to deliver for naming rights sponsors. What I will say is, what we did learn is with our with our extreme sports, we never sold naming rights again. There was the reason mm. that. The reason X Games was called Planet X and Planet X was our trademark and our brand name is because we learnt that very um, a very tough lesson, um, mm. you know, through our, you know, through seven years investment in and passion in triathlon and um, and not being able to, you know, to resell it because you've overbranded. 
Interesting. You know, you know, you kind of. I love, I love how you've created things in your life. What's it like to kind of when it's kind of in its peak, and you're kind of just sitting there thinking, "Shit, we've created this." What's it like? Or you're just so busy in the day to day that you don't get that chance to put your head up and see what you've done. No, you you do. I mean, and that's. Um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. That's one of the you know the ultimate highs. You know, so obviously the reward for you know guys who become your mates and girls who you know who who. who you know, who are family friends and people you'd sit around the dinner table with, to see them performing, you're obviously sharing in that moment. But as a promoter and as an event organiser and as a as a businessman, sure, you, you're making money. That's why you go to work, right? So um, it's not about that. But the, yeah, the, the euphoria of just before the, the start gun goes off, so it's all systems ready and there's hundreds of people involved in this and there's a helicopter you know, jet ranger helicopter buzzing around in the sky. It's all cameras there. You've got two massive OB vans, outside broadcast vans. You've got TV producers. You've learned, you know, particularly as we got about half, you know, into years two and three, you have an innate understanding of what's going on. Um, we ended up changing the production from Network 10, who produced year one, to we created our own TV production company. Um, and, uh, and and learnt about that. So, you know, we, we really, I guess, became expert in all facets of it, which that just is the most amazing feeling when, when it's about to fire up and then obviously it's a feeling of, wow, you know, the same satisfaction. I mean, I've, you know, in age group, I've crossed a couple of finish lines in a reasonable position, so I know that's satisfying. I've finished marathons and things like that. That's satisfying level of achievement. But with all that pressure, uh, with all that expectation um, that rides on your shoulders as, you know, guys in their, you know, late 20s through to, you know, through to early 30s, um, yeah, really, really rewarding and um, and amazing time in our life. Um, so just in terms of, you know, your, your brother's involvement, so that's sort of the final questions I've got. You know, you've done an immaculate job of explaining how it all unfolded, but obviously it was a bit of a family affair. So what, what were your brother's sort of involvements in the series and, and other sort of key personnel? Yeah, well, Hayden um, uh, wouldn't have been possible without Hayden. Um, I mean, he he actually introduced the family, the Bray brothers, as, as we do get referred to uh, in the uh, – in the triathlon history. Um, but, yeah, Bray Brothers uh, does sound like a good name for a circus, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe that's what Les McDonald and co. and ITU were thinking. <laughs> circus. But, um, now, Hayden, uh, as I said, after his football, professional football career uh, was coming to an end, he, he found triathlon. Uh, he did the Nice triathlon back in, mm. back in the day when – you know, when the guys were running around Hawaii were, you know, dominating in that. And then uh, he did that Triple M triathlon that I mentioned, um, you know, that uh, that Mark Dragon won back in, uh, I think that would have been late 80s. Um, yeah, so, and then without Hayden's connections, um, having, you know, Tui's as a client, St. George Bank as a client, and more importantly, being able to, you know, leverage and negotiate uh, you know, 10, 10 hours of men's and then five hours of women's live broadcast coverage with a national broadcaster, that was really significant. So uh, without that, um, yeah, uh, I, no, nothing would have been possible. And then my younger brother, uh, Damien, um, you know, pretty smart, um, uh, pretty smart and 
uh, an enterprising marketer. Um, when he, he came on board after year one, so after we completed the, uh, the TUI series and, and, uh, and helped us build the business through, through those years. So um, that, that was amazing as well. And, and, and Damien really was very creative in terms of sponsor integration and brand integration and, and athletes wouldn't appreciate and audiences probably wouldn't as well. But there's a whole marketing science that goes behind sponsorship these days and and how you get measured and how accountable you are so uh the the little things like um you we, we would do a full rehearsal of the course with all cameras switched on before there was even an athlete or a spectator in sight so you know early morning stuff ensuring the brand exposure was as per it was written in a sponsor entitlement in the back of a back of a contract um, and, and details like that. So, uh, and, and all of that stuff's super important because if you're not delivering for, you know, for brands um, or over-delivering for brands, um, you know, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to achieve the amount of revenue which helps you, you know, drive the proposition forward. But, um, yeah, so that was, that, that was really, so Damien became our marketing director. I was MD in, a, in an overarching role and, um and Hayden was uh, not on a day-to-day, but um, I guess the cornerstone of our broadcast and our, our main revenue. Wicked. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about all this yeah, because uh, a lot of people have had no no idea. You know, they see the Super League now, and that's one of the it's, it's really good timing to have you on to, you know, to see where Super League has kind of come from. Um, I- any other sort of comments you've got, or any major highlights from from the F1 days that you want to mention, or, or what you're up to these days, and uh, anything else you want to get off your chest? No, no, I'm, I'm all good. I mean, this COVID-19 is challenging for all of us, but we, <laughs> like you guys, I think the um, our prime ministers are starting to relax the, uh, um, you know, this lockdown a little bit. So, uh, yeah, a bit hard for me because I'm, I'm used to travelling internationally. I've got businesses in Jakarta um, and, as I said earlier, and a, and, and a team that's three hours behind there, but we, uh, we work with that. And uh, fortunately, I live on Manly Beach, not Bondi, so they didn't close the water. So we can, <laughs> we can still paddle a little bit. But um, no, guys, really enjoy talking to you. I mean, the highlight for me really is I remember I ran into Chris McCormack down in Cronulla uh, probably, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And I, I had no idea that he'd even won the Hawaiian Ironman. And Chris was out. Wow. He was out for a Sunday morning run, and I just remember him as a young, fresh-faced kid in the yeah, in the F1 GP series with Macca written on the back of his swimmers. Um, you know, being Aussie and New Zealand is the same because we abbreviate everybody's name. So I, I just remember Macca as this uh, young kid racing around in our series, and I was um, staying at a friend's place, and 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 there's Macca running past. So I stopped and had a chat to him, and I didn't. He obviously is very modest um guy chris and uh, <laughs> yeah. amazing and and he didn't say anything but i just i remember after that i just googled and i thought because i got interest oh what's he what's he still running around for and, uh, and then i'm like oh shit he's won the wine i mean <laughs> so so then i had a look at uh, at other australians who perform well and was you know quite um yeah just quite delighted to see how you know um Kids, as I'd call them, whilst I was only in my early 30s when we were doing all that, um, you know, these guys were still, you know, sort of 17, 18, 19, early 20s. Most of our competitors 
were in that age range. But yeah, to see what they'd done with their careers and what their lives was, um, yeah, it was really rewarding and satisfying. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I know the audience is going to be well educated now on uh, a really important part of the history of our sports. So thanks for everything you've done. Absolute legend. Awesome, guys. Appreciate the chat. Yeah. Jombo, your thoughts? Oh, it's gold, Bevan. Uh, and I just can't understate how big it, this was for, for triathlon in Australia because, you know, so I've got my son, he's in there bloody zwifting at the moment, I think, as we record, and he's just sitting there every day just watching reruns of, of Super League. And, and what this series, you know, from what I could see from the outside did was really inspired the a generation of Australian athletes and they really did become the Kenya of triathlon because you know when I, I did a couple of seasons over in France and uh, and I was nowhere near as good as, as these world-class athletes um, but I, you'd rock up to a race it'd be in the middle of bloody France and uh, there'd be the Aussies you've never even heard of and they were still bloody good really? so they had those guys you know, you'd go to any World Cup race and there'd be maybe five Aussies in the top 10 uh, but there'd be another sort of 30 or 40 of them that were all of a standard where they could race on on the world cup circuit so you know australia were at the powerhouse uh, on, on as they brought in the females as well um i remember i think it was 90 maybe about 99 world champs aussie females took first through fifth at the world championships when it was in uh, it was in Montreal, I think it was Montreal or Vancouver. Uh, they took the first five, so they were crushing it on the men's and the females side, and they just had this wave of athletes coming through. When uh, and ironically, when the series after the series stopped, Australia has really faded away, and and now they're they're good again, but they certainly aren't the, the force that they they used to be, and the rest of the world managed to catch up. It's funny looking back, John, because. This was your your kind of heyday of getting a triathlon. You you started in the early nineties, and this was just like you know triathlon bloody porn for you at that time, wasn't it? And now for someone like me who didn't really my first kind of introduction to triathlon didn't really come into the two thousands, but I, I definitely did watch some of those races. I remember on like on because in New Zealand they would cover a lot of these races, wouldn't they? Mm, exactly, and, and and that was the day of the magazines as well. So you know you are looking at these these events in magazines. We probably I, we wouldn't have got it on live TV, but no, but they must yeah, have. Because I remember because one thing that now we've probably talked about this in the past, but Hamish Carter, when he won the gold medal, he was already a household name in New Zealand. Like in New Zealand, mm. everybody knew Hamish Carter, and one of the reasons everyone knew Hamish Carter was there was a TV program called Clash of the Codes, and it was a it was. Awesome. You could never do it nowadays. There's no way mm. they'll do it nowadays. But basically what they did is they got – there was a guy called um, Paul McDonald. Was it McDonald? Yep. Yeah. Paul McDonald, yep. who was a, like a five-time Olympic gold medalist, a canoeist, amazing, amazing athlete. Um, and him and Simon Barnett, who was kind of a local celebrity, had hosted the show, and Paul McDonald would put on these physical challenges. And they managed to get pretty much – the cream of the crop of New Zealand's athletes from each sport. So basically each sport would have three athletes, wasn't it? It was two guys and a girl. Is that how it worked? Yep. 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 And, Correct. And they just put them through these killer challenges, eh? Like it was it was death. I remember a guy called Aaron Whitaker who was a league player, and I was talking to him about it. He said, mate, it was just so hard. He just said it absolutely killed him. You know, like he just said every – Sort of like Spartan-y type yeah, races. Yeah, kind right. of were, yeah. Mud runs, you, the run, the mm. Queen Street Mile, um, you know, little kind of circuit challenges and stuff like that. But really entertaining TV. And it was absolutely massive. And Hamish Carter, that, you know what, John? You know what's really interesting? Aerobics won it. 
So my peers yeah. won it. Two, three legions of kind of aerobics actually won it. But but it was kind of definitely favoured with cardio-based athletes. Cardio with a bit mm. of strength, and that's why aerobics did really well. But um, Hamish Carter often did really well in it, and he just had lots of personality. So he was a household name because of Clash of the Codes, but I knew Hamish because I'd obviously watched a few of those races from the Formula mm. One on just – Channel One at the time because Sky didn't even exist, and so Hamish Carter was already a household name as he won the Olympic gold medal. It just kind of reinforced him as a kind of a New Zealand legend, didn't it? Exactly. So some great stuff in the series, and I was just it was a, just an interesting discussion around the marketing and how these things actually happen. Um, I know we didn't necessarily talk about the athletes massively; it was more how the series sort of evolved. And you know, you think I think do you say it was two point five million? I think to to run the series each yeah, season. Like that, I we, we, and, we interviewed him last week, team. So, and that was that was what twenty five years ago, nearly thirty years yeah. ago. Uh, imagine what it would cost to run it now. Yeah, really crazy. And they had good money behind them too. Yeah. You know, so, that, that, that's pretty fascinating stuff. But great stuff. Also, stuff. the thing I love about that interview, how about the the ambition of the, that family? Because they're young mm. fellas, weren't they? They're, you know, they're yeah. so young. And just to think, we're going to put on this kind of national series in a sport that at that stage wasn't that well known, took some guts. And then where they took it after that in terms of their other endeavours was uh, was amazing. So, um, yeah, look, I think these guys, they, they really stepped away from triathlon uh, and so don't even really follow it anymore. Um, so I, th- I thought it was just it was just really interesting and, and they probably don't realise how big an effect they necessarily had on the sport uh, in terms of a long term. Uh, and now we can see it in Super League. Okay, John, let's go to Winger of the Week. And this week we're going to pull up the number... 45. Do you know why? I know, I know why that is, Kevin. <laughs> so I was watching my program last night. Are you loving it? Are you still night. loving it? We're talking about the Michael Jordan documentary. It's Michael Jordan, uh, I'm enjoying it, but I've watched two episodes last night and I'm, I'm still lo- loving it. It's great, but I'm... Um, I actually thought last night was, was the final series. It must be 10 parts. Yeah, my, next Monday is the last day. So I, I thought last night was 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 it, and then it, then it obviously wasn't. So it's getting a little bit samey in terms of set at number eight, but still really good. But the first few were, were I thought were awesome. Oh, John, um, loving it, loving it. Forty five. If you don't know, it's pretty obvious if you know Michael Jordan. When he went into retirement and played baseball, he came back with the number 45 because that was his original high school number. Uh, and then one, someone said, to, after he played a poor game, someone said, 45 ain't 23 anymore. And then he came back and kicked their ass. So, so who is it, John? 45 is Stephen Maynard. He did 16 hours and 16 minutes of training, did 13 hours and 27 minutes on the bike, and 2 hours 48 in the run. So no swimming there, but I think in the next week or two, we're going to see some some numbers start going back into people's swimming columns as uh, as the world starts to reopen a little bit. So Stefan Maynard, he's got a French name, let's see, and he is from France. Uh, it's from Moulin in France, and... I say about Stefan? I mean, he's he's cranked it up over the last uh, little period of time. Well, in France, we he probably his... has been a little bit limited as well because they've been quite restrictive of the lockdown, haven't they? Very much so. Yeah. So, average distance per week running in the last four weeks, averaging twenty two point seven k's in terms of his biking. Average distance per week, he's the, the around three hundred kilometers per week over the last four weeks. So, 
Good work, Stefan Maynard. You are our winner of the week. Of the week. Got no questions and answers today, team. So let's just kick straight into the patrons. We've got a couple of new patrons, John. We have uh, got <coughs> Ryan Curvin. Uh, he lives in Victoria in a place called Ichuka in the Murray River, which is in Victoria on the border of Victoria and New South Wales. He's a professional firefighter, a oh, senior wow. station officer, and he's been doing sprint triathlons um, between Aussie Rules football seasons about twenty for about twenty years. Completed his first full marathon in two thousand and nine, and first seventy point three in twenty eleven, and then did the fir- his first full uh, in Ironman Melbourne in twenty thirteen. He's since completed ten full Ironman distance races including the incredible challenge route in 2017 when both Bevan and I were there and he was down to do challenge Roth this year um, and would have been his wife's first full distance as well both competed together but they're going to be back in 2011 back there next year as well uh, and he sent through a cool picture. It's a picture of him finishing Challenge Roth in 2017. And he's running down the finishing shoot with his daughter Mia after a long day struggling with the heat. And I sent him an email saying, I can hear you. It was a bloody hot day. And it was 2017 was the year they changed the, the run course in Roth. And you had to go up this hill yeah. twice. And it made the time slow. And it was, uh, God, it was a battle. So I've got a couple of options, Bevan. Okay, hit me with your options. So uh, we've got this from the nickname generator. We've got uh, Ryan the Kingmaker Curvin or Ryan Kicket Curvin. Yep. Um, but then the other one that I thought of that I think I like is Big Red. And why Big, Big Red? Red? Because he's a fireman. Oh, okay. Yep. I like it. I like Big it. Red. Yep. That's good. Excellent. And then we also had his wife became a patron as well in the same week, Michelle Curvin. She's been doing tries, uh, doing 70.3s in marathons for the last five years, inspired by watching her husband Ryan compete for many years. Uh, she's a mum. She works full-time as a bank manager, and along with Ryan's shift work, means a lot of her training is done indoors. And she recently fallen in love with Zwift. She's been on a couple of our Zwift rides that we've done. Uh, she was lucky enough to win her age group at a 70.3 and race at the 70.3 World Champs in South Africa in 20. 2018, and she's booked in to do Rote next year because she Game couldn't do on. it this year. Game on. Now, I, now, like, I, I like your last one. I do as well because Michelle's is in banking. Yep, and John's come up with ATM, awesome triathlon mum. There you go. Love it. ATM, I, as soon ATM as I saw that, big red. I just thought, that's, that's it. Lock it in, Eddie. Lock it yeah. in. And she delivers the cash. That's how she rolls. She yeah. You know, she feeds the cash to the family. Good old, old, good old Ryan has to go, honey, can I have some money? She's like, have you earned it? Here's the cash. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and a couple of other patrons we had. Um, now, so this, this first one, Steve Danidis. He actually sent us through how to pronounce the name. And so, Steve, I'm authorizing you. I'm, every time your name comes up and we reread out nicknames, so I'm going to get Bevan to do it. Oh. And if he doesn't get your pronunciation right each time, you can kick him in the nuts whenever you oh, meet that's, him. Oh, so that's lovely. Well, Dana Dis, like, as long as you keep that pronunciation there, I can do it. But I would have gone Donna Adissi. Donna Adissi? I would have done, yeah, I don't know. So yeah. uh, he's the storm. I struggle with Smith, John. So <laughs> I'm getting kicked in the balls everywhere I go. I'll just be walking down the street. You got my name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've also got John Mincy. Mincy, Mincy? 
Love that one. <laughs> James, Dirty Dog, Spence. And then James, the Red Rocket, Thomas. These people all support the show. And it's also been really nice to get some new patrons on the show over the last period of time. It's obviously a bit of a challenging time for both John and myself with the fitness industry. Uh, so we just really support, appreciate the support that the new patrons and the more traditional patrons are giving to the show right now. Also, if you want to become a patron, go to www.imtalk.me. It's on the website. It's all pretty obvious. While you're there, you can get the show emailed to you. Go down to the bottom of the front page put your information in each time we release a show I email it to you also you can get Legends of Triathlon on that page now the legendsoftriathlon.com no longer exists well it does but it just takes you to that page uh, coaching you go to coachjohnnewson.com my podcast bevanjamesoz.com other content age group of the week call websites other feedback I am talk podcast at gmail.com John what's your goss? I'm Bevan this time next week we might be back in the studios together Oh, we will be up to, won't we? Yeah. Yes. It's going to mean me getting out of my bloody bike and biking up your hill. It's pretty, it's coming up to, to quarter say, to eight in the morning. It is a little bit confusing about what the level two rules are around fitness. I won't be kissing and cuddling you, but. No, uh, no, but even just from our business, we're not quite sure if we can start or not because they weren't that clear around. They said like funerals and stuff like that, you're going to have 10 people, but they said sport and recreation is open. So we, we're trying to figure mm. out today if we're allowed to actually start our running groups again. I've got some suggestions for you because I think you can. So you should be all should be all good. Oh, that's good to know. Um, yes, Bevan. So next week we'll hopefully be in the studios. It's convenient it is to come down to my office and do this from here. It is good to be back in in the room together, and it also means that my wife can start her laundry on time oh, on Tuesday. It's been a sacrifice, yeah. So that's my office is next to the laundry and when the, the washing machine's going you know Blinda she gets up every morning turns that washing machine on and uh, makes a little bit too much noise for our podcasting so she's going to be happy as well got to keep that wife happy John now John I, I, I had a slight pull on my hamstring so I haven't been running much in the last couple of weeks not bad but just kind of wisely keeping off it so I've been getting back on the bike love biking it's quite cool been doing Rides of about an hour and a half, like long bays, short bays, not long bays, mm. short bays, summit road, I even did the bus the other day. But yesterday mm. I, I had a really busy day and I thought I'm only going to get 50 minutes in, so I'll do repeats up and down Hackthorn. Now, mm. I haven't really ridden my bike in a long time. And mm-hmm. one thing that's come into cycling, which really frustrates me, <laughs> electric cycles. Oh, mm. I do not like it when a 65-year-old lady blast past you on an electric yeah. bike. And now, admittedly, I'm not blitzing myself for my whole piece, but I wasn't going easy either. I was passing most people on the bike. Mm. And, uh, I, not, I do not like it, John. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing your frustration, but it's good to see people are out there and, and doing but it. they just uh, blow past you. Like, it's not even, yeah. you know, like, like, it was just... And then one other guy, luckily there was another guy, I've kind of just finished my repeats, and so I did from Hackthorn to the cup. Yeah, my house is just a little bit higher than that, so at the end of the session I had to kind of ride up a couple hundred metres to get to my house. Um, and one other guy on a mountain bike blew past me, and he goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> so at least he knew. But, um, and as I said, I think it's awesome that people are out there, but I do struggle a bit with, if, you, if you're going up a really steep climb, and I see this if I'm going up Rapaki, People on electric bikes aren't even putting any effort in. And like, yeah. I get it, you need that assistance to be able to get there. And you're up, and you probably wouldn't get up if you didn't have an e-bike, but at least put it on a level where you're actually doing some work on the uphill. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I Ultimately, I think it's such a great thing because it's getting more people moving. Um, and, and 
there's actually a, a Kickstarter for a bike right now, which you can get an electric bike for like two thousand bucks, and it looks pretty cool. So maybe even thinking about it, if we if we were to knock down John, I'd definitely get one. But nice. um, but yeah, it it's 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 hard for the ego. It's, it's <laughs> and even though you know you can justify the passing year, it's still just not a nice feeling. I'm not liking it. How's your run challenge yeah. coming along? Run challenge. What what is the date today? Today's the twelfth. Uh, so yeah, it's going okay. Ticking along, trying to find different routes and stuff around home, which is great. Doing a bit of running with the kids. So my my plan is the first sort of ten days has just been literally running, and uh, it's like pretty slow stuff. Just going out there, hardly even puffing. Next ten days, I sort of start to add a bit more structure in, and then the last ten days will be a bit more regular sort of uh, interval type running. So so far so good. We're doing a little bit less biking, um, but yeah, running's running's going good. No injury worries, and, and, and this is what I said probably last week and the week before: is once you get over that little hump of running regularly, then it's sweet. And Thomas, my bloody son, is is a bit addicted to training at the moment. He's biking every morning, and he's trying to run just about every day. And I'm trying to gently discourage him from doing that, but he's had a few little niggles uh. in the past. But now he's in a routine of actually exercising every single day he's he's sweet and got no no soreness or niggles well, or anything I, I don't know if you listened to the interview i did with the author of peak and he was talking about that you tend to find especially elite athletes who work high intensity when they maintain that they tend to get less injured uh, mm. it, it's and when we yeah okay we see that on epic camp as well um because once you get into routine you know um you're, you're sweet so that's all good bevan looking forward to the kids going back to school though next week which is going to be great so there's a question i have for you jumbo now, now, so New Zealand's going to level two, which is still, it's open, kind of still with some restrictions, and we're going to sit in there for a couple of weeks and so on. But it does mean we can do some more things. What are you going to do now, moving from Thursday forward, that maybe you haven't done? What's, what are you going to go, yep, I'm looking forward to doing this? Uh, I mean, I started riding outside a bit more anyway, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, looking forward to, yeah, as I said, getting the kids out and then just looking forward to probably just going out a couple of times um, in terms of just going to a couple of restaurants and stuff. And so looking forward to that. Yeah. What about you, Bevan? Well, we do have a dilemma, John. Mm. We have a big dilemma because we plan to catch up with our friends this weekend, but we can't do it with 10. So, nah, right. so, how, so and the problem is the kid factor. Because adults-wise, we can make it work. But uh, mm-hmm. we're basically, there's a couple of group of friends um, who we kind of catch up regularly with. And they've got a lot of kids. So I don't know if we can do it, John. They can get babysitters. I suppose. That's a good point. Yeah, screw the, screw the kids. Screw the kids. <laughs> screw, screw, the kids. screw the kids. Yeah. There we go. Well, there we go. So... Wherever you are, hopefully your country's getting into a better place. It's actually interesting, John, that I've been kind of every day I go on virustracker.com and um, the numbers are definitely coming around, even in countries that maybe haven't managed it well. Like I know the US is getting a bit of a hard time, but you know, this time last week they were having 2,500 deaths. Yesterday they had 750. So, you know, fingers crossed we are seeing the other side of this. It's hard to know, but I'd love to think that we are on the better side of this, not just in New Zealand, but all around the world. So, game on. Mm. Let's wrap it up. Yep, let's do it. I'm Russ. I'm Endo. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. Kia kaha.